And good morning to everybody who's online. It's a privilege to be together in worshiping our God. So, I don't know if you noticed, but it's the 4th of July. Did you notice? And the 4th of July is one of my favorite days of the year for a number of reasons. The first one is, it's my birthday. And, I mean, who... Who doesn't, who doesn't enjoy their birthday, right? And I remember one time many, many years ago, uh, my oldest son, Evan, was about three, and we went to fireworks over it, and we sat on the hillside at Kellogg, you know, Kellogg Middle School, you know how the, how the hillside goes there, and there were hundreds, maybe thousands of people lined up uh, seated all around us, and I put an arm around Evan, and I said, Evan, you see all these people? And he said, yeah. And I said, all these people are here to celebrate Daddy's birthday. And, and he was like, wow! And that was the last time Evan ever believed me when I said, no. No, I'm, I'm totally not one of the lie-to-your-kids kind of people. That was probably the only lie, and I corrected it within five minutes. Um, but for another reason, it's our nation's birthday. July 4th, 1776, is the date that the Second Continental Congress adopted the Declaration of Independence, formally announcing our desire to separate from Great Britain. Now these days, our history seems to be an ever-increasing mountain of controversy, which is not the focus of today's message. But let me just take a minute to acknowledge the thousands, the hundreds of thousands, the millions of godly men and women who have had an impact on this nation from its founding to today and the gracious work of God in their lives. But these days, our culture is looking more like the culture in the time of the judges. And you'll recall the theme verse of the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And in this time of unparalleled moral confusion, God has plenty to say to us from the book of Judges. So I'd like to take you back to Judges for this third installment in Gideon's story. I remember learning about Gideon as a child. It might have been in Sunday school, or it might have been in real school. I grew up in Wisconsin Synod Lutheran schools, and so it's all hazy as to where and what and when. Um, but Gideon seemed to me like an uncomplicated guy, a guy with a close relationship with the Lord, so close that he could ask God for cool signs like, please make this fleece dry and the ground around it wet, and then the next day, please make this fleece wet and the ground around it dry, and God did him. And it, and it was just kind of fascinating. This is a guy who routed the whole Midianite army with 300 of the weird guys, right? 300 of the guys who scooped up the water in their hands and then lapped it like a dog. And so my childhood view of Gideon was uncomplicatedly wonderful. Um, but the story of Gideon is actually much more complicated and far more compromised than that. And we'll get into that in a moment, but first, let's remind ourselves a little bit about the period of the judges. 
we're talking about the time period from maybe 1400 to 1050 BC. So it's, it's a good span of time, honestly. It's about the same as the United States has been around. The baby nation of Israel has survived its 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and now God has brought them to the promised land through the godly leadership of Joshua and Caleb, the only two spies who were the ones who had faith. Remember, God said, go in and take the land, and ten spies said, we look like grasshoppers in their eyes, and two spies said, yeah, we can do it, and those were Joshua and Caleb, and so they got to go in. They entered the promised land, and the Israelites have short memories, and as soon as generation two died, the next generation, it says, did not know the Lord. Now, I feel quite sure that did not know the Lord there doesn't mean had no awareness of the Lord. I think what did not know the Lord means is they thought that this was mom and dad and grandma and grandpa's thing, and they didn't have any desire to obey or follow the Lord. Um, And so they began what is called the judges cycle. The people forget the Lord. They do evil in his eyes, and so God allows an oppressor to come in to their land and take over and cause them great difficulty. And within a short amount of time, or a later amount of time, the people cry out to God, and he sends them somebody, a national deliverer, a judge, some kind of leader. And these leaders even though they're flawed, defeated the oppressor and led Israel back towards the worship of the true God. This revival of truth, however, rarely outlasts the lifetime of that judge. So for the last two weeks, we've been studying the life of Gideon together. We saw in chapter 6 how Israel was overrun with nomadic Midianites and that when the angel of the Lord came to Gideon, he was threshing wheat in a wine press. Okay? Now, I just want to go off, off the trail here for a minute and say that is not the ideal situation. Right? If you're threshing wheat in the ancient world, you want to be out in a broad, flat area where the wind can catch the chaff and blow it out of your way and the grain can stay down right with you. But Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. In other words, he's hemmed in and there's no real wind getting to him and he's kind of the perfect picture for the nation of Israel at that time. All of Israel is hemmed in at that moment and Gideon was just as troubled and just as reduced as his culture. When God called him to lead the people, Gideon was sure that he couldn't do it and he asked for sign after sign after sign that God was going to be with him through whatever the circumstances would be. And when God told him to tear down the altar to Baal and tear down the Asherah poles, you'll recall that he did it in the middle of the night because he was afraid of the neighbors. Gideon has just the tiniest sliver of faith, but God is gracious to him in every circumstance. When Gideon called forth the troops of Israel, about 32,000 men responded, which is one-fourth of what the Midianites had. 
And we saw in chapter 7 that the Lord told Gideon to reduce that force two more times until the whole army numbered just 300 of the weird guys who lapped the water out of their hands, right? And God used those guys basically shouting and blowing trumpets to rout the whole Midianite army. And John Downer showed us last week how that was not only brilliant psychological warfare to have one of the guys with uh, the torch and the trumpet stationed around, the, around their entire camp, um, but it also demonstrated that this miraculous outcome was from the Lord's hand. And so um, God does it this way to demonstrate that victory comes from him, not from raw numbers, not from military might, not from human planning. Victory belongs to the Lord. And chapter 7 ended with the men of Ephraim capturing and killing Oreb and Zeb, two Midianite leaders. So, let's go to chapter 8 and find out the last installment in Gideon's story. Since there's so much text here, I'm just going to read the section of the text and then I'm going to talk about that section, then we'll move on to the next section, talk about that section. So, efforts at efficiency. 8-1. Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they criticized him sharply. But he answered them, What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezar? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment against him subsided. So Gideon's just come off a supernatural, God-ordained victory, and the first thing he faces is criticism. Leaders face criticism year in and year out, especially the leader who happens to be at the point of the spear. So criticism is not unique. But Gideon's response here is, notice the profound humility in Gideon's words. What have I accomplished compared to you? Gideon doesn't care who gets the credit. He only wants God to be honored and Israel to be set free from the oppression. And so he highlights the Ephraimites' contribution while downplaying his own. The kind of humility that Gideon displays here is celebrated throughout the scriptures. In Numbers 12, verse 3, we're told that Moses was more humble than any man who walked on the face of the earth, even though he was able to talk to God face to face. In Psalm 115, verse 1, the psalmist cries out, Not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. In Ephesians 4.2, we are told to be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. This kind of humility on this 4th of July reminds me of Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, Team of Rivals. In this book, Doris Kearns Goodwin 
takes an intimate look at the Lincoln presidency, Abraham Lincoln's administration. And what Lincoln really did was he got the most talented and in some cases the most egotistical men of his generation, and he knit them together into a team. That's where the title comes from, Team of Rivals. He, he knit them into a cabinet, a team. Um, and the only way to get these guys to work with each other was for Lincoln himself to be completely humble, not caring about who got the credit for any particular initiative. See, Lincoln was focused on the result, saving the Union and freeing the enslaved. Um, and he didn't care who got the glory for any particular initiative. This value of Abraham Lincoln's is the same throughout the whole Bible. We are never once commanded to act proudly unless it's boasting in the Lord. Instead, we hear God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's James 4, 6. So Gideon gets it right here, and you can too, every time that you worry more about the result and less about who gets the credit for the result. All right, let's go on. 8-4. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Succoth, Give my troops some bread. They are worn out, and I am still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth said, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Then Gideon replied, Just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. From there, he went up to Peniel and made the same request of them, but they answered as the men of Succoth had. So he said to the men of Peniel, When I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with a force of about 15,000 men, all that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples. 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. Gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of Nobah and Jagbiha and fell upon the unsuspecting army. Zeba and Zalmunna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Herez. He caught a young man of Succoth and questioned him, and the young man wrote down for him the names of the 77 officials of Succoth, the elders of the town. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Succoth, Here are Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me by saying, Do you already have the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? He took the elders of the town and taught the men of Succoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. So Gideon and his men are pursuing the remaining Midianites to completely neutralize the threat. And they're hungry. But the officials of two different towns act without faith and without generosity and refuse them food. And in Gideon's snap judgment against these towns, you can see more of the spirit of the age 
than of the Spirit of the Lord. And in fact, just a side note here, if you look at chapter 7, chapter 6 and chapter 7, the Lord is very prominent in chapter 6 and 7. He's mentioned numerous times, and you can see him directing the activities. You get into chapter 8 by about this point, and um, his name is much less frequent, and the activities that happen in chapter 8 are far less godly activities. So is Gideon someone to imitate in these actions, this quick desire for revenge? I think not. In fact, the scriptures are just as clear about revenge as they are about humility. We are always to pursue humility. We are never to pursue revenge. I remember, as a kid, being angry at classmates who picked on me. See, I was small and skinny, and unfashionable, and had poor social skills. And I know what you're thinking, has anything changed? Uh, But anyway, I was the perfect target for a bully in need of a target, um, and they they showed up. And uh, as a grade schooler, my desire for revenge got so strong, I could almost taste it. And in those times, my dad would tell me over and over, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. That's Romans 12, verse 19, and he quoted it at me in his beloved King James from that generation. But the point stayed with me, and years later, when I came to true faith in the Lord, the desire for revenge just dropped away completely, and I don't struggle with that today. I'm not saying I don't struggle with anything. I struggle with lots of things. But I don't struggle at all with a desire for revenge. I was able to forgive because of the working of the Spirit of God in my life. But Gideon doesn't forgive. He teaches these guys a lesson, which on a human level they kind of deserved. Verse 16 tells us that he punished the men of Succoth with desert thorns and briars. Verse 17 about the men of Peniel is more literal, but the commentators seem to agree that probably the leaders of both towns were executed. So it's, it's a powerful sense of revenge that Gideon engages in here. Do you ever struggle with a desire for revenge? Maybe you have an annoying coworker who makes fun of you in front of other people. Maybe it's your husband or wife. Maybe it's a family member or one of those friends who isn't really a friend. If you're a kid, maybe it's your brother or sister. And I have to say, I find it one of the saddest things when brothers and sisters don't learn to get along with one another and trying continually to get back at each other. And kids, I want you to think about this. God gave you the opportunity to have built-in close friends right there in your very own home. People you can play with and do stuff with and drown the loneliness with, right? Um, And yet so many of you, even some of you who are really nice kids in public, as soon as you're home, you go at it with each other like cats and dogs. And even though our culture would call it normal when you prefer yourself above others, um, God calls that sin. So I ask you to think about how you can 
contribute to healthy relationships in your home? What can you do to promote peace and blessing and encouragement and goodwill? Let's put down our desire for revenge and let's think about how we can love in the same way Jesus loves us. 18 through 21. 18. Then he, that's Gideon, asked Ziba and Zalmunna, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. Ziba and Zalmunna said, Come, do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their camel's necks. Verses 18 through 21 wrap up the Ziba and Zalmunna portion of the story. Um, Z and Z's testimony that they took down Gideon's full brothers motivates Gideon to seek revenge once again. And not only to just seek revenge, but to seek revenge in kind of the sweetest, juiciest sort of way, which is to have his son go up and kill them. That would be super, super humiliating. Um, But Jether can't carry it out, uh, either through fear or possibly moral repugnance. Um, And Gideon is left to execute them himself, which he does. 22. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, We'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each man threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels. That's about 43 pounds. Um, Not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town, All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. At the beginning of this segment, Israel basically offers Gideon the kingship, and he rightly refuses. God hasn't called him to be king, and the ideal for their time was to be a nation ruled quite directly by the Lord himself. Which explains Gideon's declaration, the Lord will rule over you. We're going to see that ultimately Israel can't handle it and will eventually be under the power of a king. But for the moment, this is the game plan. But as much as Gideon's mouth says, I'm not king, his actions speak a little bit otherwise. What he does next is fairly king-like, 
um, when he asks everyone to toss in a gold earring from their share of the plunder. They do it, and Gideon takes the 43 pounds of gold and fashions an ephod. Now, ephod is not a word that you and I use very frequently. What it is, it's part of the high priest's garments. It's, It's the vestment sort of thing that covers the shoulders and the chest of the high priest as he is serving Yahweh. Um, Now this may have been a gold version of the priestly ephod, or this same term might be used to cover some other object of worship that they set up. But whatever it is, Gideon fashions this thing, and then he places it in Ophrah, his hometown. And the text doesn't tell us why he does that, but it's possible that he thought by fashioning this ephod that it would bring the center of divine activity to his local hometown and that that would kind of keep him in the center of influence. And uh, so perhaps that's why he did it. Um, And the Israelites, true to form, engage in idolatrous worship there. There are a couple of real-life applications that I'd like to draw from this episode with the ephod. The first is how easy it is to take some aspect of biblical Christianity and make it the thing that you talk about constantly when you are preaching, teaching, or having conversations with others. Because you know the ephod was just one aspect of the, the worship that God had prescribed for his people at that time. And we do this. Okay? Every one of us who has any preaching or teaching function has a favorite thing that we like to go to. Maybe your big thing is creation versus evolution, or apologetics, or end times prophecies. Maybe it's missions, or evangelism, or how the nation of Israel fits into God's future plans. My personal hobby horse is how... <coughs> how um, contemporary issues can be thought about in the light of God's Word. It's Christian worldview studies. That's mine. And whenever you have something like that, you have to be careful that your little piece of the puzzle that you're excited about doesn't become the main thing. Because the main thing goes like this. God loves us. God wants us to be in a right relationship with Him. Our sin is a barrier to that right relationship. God's Son, Jesus, died on a cross so that your sin and my sin could be forgiven and so that we could have that right relationship with Him restored. If you put your faith in Christ, you will be saved from the penalty of sin and you will be with God for all eternity. That's what I mean when I say we've got to keep the main things the main things. As soon as the basic truths of our faith go off to the side, we are really preaching no gospel at all. The other thing I take from the ephod episode is that it's easy to go off the rails. Let's face it. A lot of us in this congregation are in our 40s and 50s and 60s. Dare I go any higher? Um, and we've been walking with Jesus for a long time. In my case, 
there's never been a time that I didn't think I was a Christian. And for the last 30 years, I have been purposefully, committedly following Christ. However badly I might have lived it out. So, a lot of us have been following Jesus for a long time. And it's easy to put that relationship on the back burner and kind of be on autopilot in your faith and your walk with God. Um, And what I discover is that if you do that, um, it leads to finding satisfaction in other things. A new hobby. A new position of power or influence. A focus on food, either preparing the tastiest cuisine or trying to lose the pounds that the tastiest cuisine puts on you. Um, A belief that our salvation and satisfaction comes from political action. It doesn't. A relationship. A shiny new car. A trip to a tropical paradise when the weather around here is trying to kill us. My experience has been, especially in coming through the pandemic, that I was looking for meaning and purpose, or at least relief of pain, and that I did not always look for those things in Christ. And so I'd like to put the question out there for you. Does your life have some ephods? Some things that you're excited about, but are actually becoming a snare to you and the people around you? If so, you've got to yank those things down and erect worship of the true God in their place. Worship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And most of the things that I listed earlier, they're good things, right? But they are not worthy of your worship. Okay? And they will actually steal your life instead of giving it. Last section, 828. Here we go. Thus, Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace 40 years. Jerubbabel, son of Joash, that's Gideon, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son who he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Berith as their god and did not remember the Lord, their god, who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show kindness to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, for all the good things he had done for them. This section serves as the conclusion to the Gideon account. The text mentions that Gideon had 70 sons, a huge number. I have an aunt out in New York. She had 11 children. We thought that was a lot. Um, The writer comments Riley for he had many wives. And without getting into it too deeply, um, let me just say that God allows polygamy here and in other sections of the Scripture, but never condones it and never celebrates it. 
having multiple wives changes the nature of the covenant of marriage quite fundamentally and makes it impossible for marriage to be a picture of Jesus and his church. In fact, it sort of turns it into Jesus and the church and the mosque and the synagogue and, well, you get the idea. But back to Gideon. The 70 sons indicate Gideon's wealth and power and the mention of his son who was the son of the concubine at Shechem uh, prepares us for chapter 9 next week. Uh, but that's, that's a difficult account. And we had talked earlier about how Gideon said, I'm not your king and the Lord's going to be your king. Uh, you know what Abimelech means? It means my father is king. Yeah, nice work. Um, the 70 sons and the one son of the concubine. Eventually, uh, Gideon dies at a good old age. The only two others to have that descriptor with them, their deaths characterized that way, are Abraham and King David. I want to say a word about the 40 years of peace that the land experienced under Gideon. Obviously, it was a compromised peace where the worship of Baal was going on at the same time as the worship of Yahweh. So there were certainly the faithful few who were continuing the worship of the true God in the ways that he had prescribed. But there was Baal worship and Asherah worship all over the place. And I would argue it's the same story all over our region. There are many buildings that are Christian churches, but the worship inside them is compromised. The, the message inside is far short of, or even in conflict with the gospel. It's a compromised faith that won't outlast the people who are practicing it. And that's why church planting is so important. Every community needs a gospel witness that grows into a Bible-teaching church. Every community needs the opportunity to bow down before the King of Kings, the true God, instead of whatever myriad of idols it may have. Because true worship of the true God brings glory to Him, and it brings real change into the lives of the worshipers. And as James K.A. Smith famously wrote, you are what you love. And so we end the Gideon story with more than a bit of regret. Where Gideon chose to obey the Lord, things went well. When he headed off into his own ideas, the only long-lasting fruit was thorns and thistles. But as we look at the deliverers from the time of the judges and acknowledge how deeply flawed they were, it causes us to lift up our eyes and behold the true deliverer, the ultimate deliverer, the Father's final word to us, Jesus Christ. It's because of Jesus that we have true deliverance, freedom from the bondage of sin. It's because of Jesus that we have the certain hope of eternal life. It's because of Jesus that we can love one another because of the body of Christ it's because of Jesus that we can have fellowship with one another. And that's what we're going to share in just a moment here. So uh, we're going to experience that in the Lord's Supper as Kelly Reynolds comes up and leads us. 
So I ask you to pray with me, and then we'll continue with the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, we've looked into your word this morning, and we thank you for the time that we've had to look at it and to think about it together and to be encouraged to apply it to our lives. We ask, Lord, that by the work of your Spirit in our lives that that we would be able to finish more strongly and more purely than Gideon. We ask that we would continue to delight in your word, to delight in you, uh, and to know that the true satisfaction, the true life, is found in you. So God, I, I acknowledge that uh, many times I've become more excited about other things than about you, uh, and I repent of that, and I ask that we would all do that in our own hearts this morning. And we thank you that your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is our true Deliverer, and that in him we have redemption, we have forgiveness of sins, we have a life that never stops. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.